A one, two, one, two. Check my linguistics. Hello, my name is Vinny and I am elsewhere from my usual habitat. I'm out and about in the world. And it's time for one of those podcasts that just sort of reflects on where I am. If you've never heard my podcast before, I don't think you should go back to the start, but go back a, go back a few. And so you can build up a picture of what on earth this is all about. Uh, last time I did a travel series, I was in Ghana, in Africa. This time I'm going to do a few podcasts from India. An Indian man's walked out onto the balcony. Not a lot of room for us, but uh, there you go. I'm in India, and perhaps that was very telling because it's very hard to find any privacy in India because there's 1.1 billion people ready to walk out on your podcast at any moment. Hello there. Oh, lovely! Thank you. Been given a chair. Thanks, mate. And. Uh, there you go, my first note, the people are friendly. I just come out to clean all the uh, mid-morning moisture off the chairs. It is about 15 degrees. I'm in Agra, home of Taj Mahal. Uh, a few hours train south of Delhi, where I started. New Delhi, if you must. And it's bloody gorgeous. I'm sat between some rose flowers overlooking a silent street, which is a very rare thing in India. Um, there's no traffic on this street because it's a dead end. And if you can book anywhere that's a dead end, please do, because uh, being on a main street is tantamount to having your ears ripped open by a three-year-old child whose teeth are coming through and screamed at for the entire evening. It's that sort of volume is what we're talking about with traffic. It's fucking mental. Anyway, let's give you some stats. I've got some cool stats here. Um, I'm speaking a little bit quieter than usual because I am essentially chatting to myself on a balcony and there's a few people in their apartments behind me asleep. So if my enthusiasm doesn't sound quite up to its usual level, you know why, but I'm just doing a bit of stealth recording while I can really, so I can tell you where I am and what's going on. Uh, so over the next few podcasts, you'll hear travels around India, but let's start, as I say, with those stats. And let's get in there. So India, the seventh largest country by area. Not a particularly amazing stat, that, is it? We haven't got in there with the big guns. Let's, let's sex it up with some real belters. Here we go. The second most populous country, all right? There's actually 1.3 billion. I've just, I, earlier, I think I said 1.1. It's so big, you can lose 0.2 billion, just like that. Yeah, there's 1.3 billion people. Just for context, that's 17% of the world population. 17% of everyone lives here. And for extra context, I worked out that Canada is 0.4% of everyone. So if you're Canadian, you're a rare breed. Well done. Uh, so that's that. It is the most populated democracy in the world. Fact. Home of tea, which I'm sampling by the bucket load to try and keep myself from being ill because it's also home of Delhi Belly, which I'm sure we'll get into later without uh, hopefully going into too much detail. There'll be no live recordings of toilets. No one needs to be put through that. 
bounded by the Indian Ocean on the south, the Arabian Sea on the southwest, the Bay of Bengal on the southeast. It shares land borders with Pakistan, China, Nepal, and my favourite bee countries since Brexit, Bhutan, Bangladesh, and Burma. Oh yes, they love a border. Uh, the population in India is 455 people per square kilometre. Now, that sounds high, doesn't it? And it sounds high because it is. It is a massive country, but they're filled it up quite nicely. Uh, the population, 455 per square kilometre. So what's that for context then? In the UK, it's 275, so pretty much half-ish. Um, and in Canada, guess how many people there are per square kilometre in Canada? Just pop a little number in your head, a very little number, smaller than that. 455 in India, 275 in the UK. In Canada, it's a big four. That's enough, don't want to crowd the place. You know what, in fairness, when you spend a winter in Canada, four seems pretty fucking high. Yeah. So, uh, just to give you an idea of what that means, 1.3 billion people knocking about here, that means the population goes up actually more than one a second, which means that in the time I've been talking to you, we've probably had, let's have a quick look, since, since this recording started, how many Indians have joined us in the world, and welcome along to you by the way, potential new listeners, it's um, 363, about, yeah, about 400 Indians have been born since I started talking. And, and, and I should say, not only, <coughs> actually, not only have they been born, but that includes the fact that quite a lot have died since I've been talking. So more than that have been born. That's just added to the pot. Yeah, the population goes up by more than one a second. So in other words, they just love a bonk. You know, we all do, but they are, they are particularly big fans of bonking and not massive fans of the condom. Although, having said that, it's not, it's, when you really look in these stats even further, you've got 2.43 kids per Indian woman, right? 2.43 kids per woman. In Japan, it's 1.4. But as we all know, Japan has, has a very depleting population. In fact, I heard the other day, and this is, this is a great fact for you, that Japan, are the government, are now paying for people to internet date. Because <laughs> they're so keen for people to start getting their winky wet. No, I don't think that was the official government term, but I think you understand my point. Um, so yeah, 2.43 kids per woman here, 1.4 in Japan. And that got me thinking, all right then, what's number one? Who, who loves a kid more than anyone else? Um, there's lots of African countries where they have lots of kids, but the one that I found that was the, the best was Burkina Faso. Every woman has six children, just under. Six children, yeah. Slow it down, Burkina Faso. No one needs that much noise in their life. Just sitting next to one of those little buggers for eight hours on the way here was enough for me. So yeah, there is a very high population uh, and it is growing but it's not growing at quite the rate that it used to in the 70s they were banging them out at about four apiece I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm aware that I'm saying this with not the most professional sentiment deal with it I arrived in Delhi about 
three days ago. It's so action-packed here that it actually feels like about two weeks ago. If you want to live life and you feel very bored at the moment, go to India. Um, you will be living the life, a fast-paced one full of madness, colours, smells, all kinds of smells, good ones and bad ones, the roses that I'm next to, the poo in the street. Um, you'll be living that life pretty quickly. It's definitely exciting. So it feels like I've been here for ages, but I've only been here for three days. And um, I just wanted to talk you through what I found when I first got here, really. I think the most um, pressing thing that you notice straight away, a bit, like un a bit unlike anywhere else I've ever been, actually, is the pollution. Now, that's not all over India, although it is concentrated to numerous big cities. It's particularly awful in Delhi, um, partly because it's got a population that's larger than Australia. I don't know how many there are here, something like 30 million or something in Delhi. The thing that you notice first of all, and you, I was warned about this, is the pollution. And just to give you a flavour of what it's like, first of all, some days they have to cancel the trains because the visibility is so low because of the smog that trains quite often hit wandering cows on the track. So that should give you a flavour of just how intense the view of the uh, pollution is. But that doesn't really explain why it's so bad and it doesn't explain what it smells like. So let's look at smell first of all. So when I arrived a few days ago, I got out of the plane straight into one of those, you know, arms, always sponsored by HSBC, by the way. That is, how have they managed that all around the world? I got into one of those, what are they called then? I don't know. Anyway, when you get into a wee arm and you go wandering along into the airport complex itself. So, and it was all air conditioned and lovely. And then you get into the main airport and I do my usual, hype myself up, have a cup of coffee before the madness begins. And uh, so I was having a cup of coffee and I was sat next to these automatic doors that every now and then would open and close, as automatic doors often do. And uh, I thought, that's weird. Why is there someone burning a pile of tires just outside the door? A peculiar place to be allowed to do that. No, apparently that's Delhi. Um, that smell never left for the few days that I was in Delhi, it's absolutely mind-boggling. Uh, just to give you a flavour, I've looked up a few stats on that. It takes six years off every Delhi resident's life, the pollution. So just by living here, in Delhi at least, you're already six years shorter than everyone else. And I met a guy on the train the other day, an Indian dude who had a son, and he was a very intelligent man, so we got chatting away. <laughs> that was interesting terminology. He was very intelligent, so we got chatting away. If he was unintelligent, I wouldn't have bothered. Um, yeah, so he was an intelligent man, and we got chat and, and we got chatting away. That's better terminology. And uh, yeah, his son, who was sat next to him, lovely little lad, was born with asthma. Um, and that's quite common because it's so repressive. In fact, as I'm talking to you, I'm not even in Delhi, I'm in Agra, but Agra's pretty bad for pollution as well. I, you hear this all the time, I'm sorry to put you through this, but I have to deal with it every day. You hear this. 
That's what everyone does all the time, because you kind of have to, because of all the crap that builds up in your throat and your nose and your nasal cavities. It's quite often when you come home from a date, you'll blow your nose and it will look like some sort of soot explosion. I hope you're enjoying that. There we go. Yeah, so it's, it's gross. It's gross for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, everyone drives tuk-tuks and they're full of, you know, they're just basically large motorbikes, aren't they? I think the two-stroke engines blurting out fumes. Um, there's no regulations on any cars, of course, on what, what kind of emissions they have. A bit like a VW. Woohoo! And, um, yeah, it's just, it's just rough around the edges, really. They've got Obviously loads of fossil fuel burning power plants, loads of industry inside Delhi. You know, you have to wonder when you pick up some of your electronics, some of your textiles particularly, where was it made and how was it made? And uh, the reason you can get a t-shirt for, I don't know, five bucks in Gap or two bucks in Chinatown is because it was probably made here in India, in a textile factory that uh, has absolutely no respect for any emissions. Now, I'm not having a go at the Indian system. The problem's bigger than that. It's a very, very poor country, so we could get into the blame game. The fact is that it's just a bit of a shit show and it needs some big government regulation and uh, it's going to take a while. But the smog is absolutely inconceivable. In fact, data from the government showed the air quality index, which measures the concentration of poisonous particulate matter, was an average this week of 449. Now, I don't know what that means because I don't know what that judgment is. So I read on to find out that the index measures the concentration of tiny poisonous particulate matter that are uh, less than 2.5 microns in diameter, which can be carried deep into the lungs and fuck you up. Uh, the previous highest recording was 447, so around the same, and that was way back in June when there was a dust storm. So that's all very well, but, but what's, what's safe? Well, anything above 100 is considered unhealthy. So 449, I'm not that good at maths, but I think that's higher than 100. In some parts of Delhi, pollution levels hit 654 this week, among the worst recorded ever and visibility in some parts of the city was 200 metres. Uh, that's what the weather department said. Environmentalists said that the inaction by the authorities was inexcusable and a concerted effort was needed to reduce pollution from vehicles and industry. 450 around, that's, that's the number we're talking about, and the safe level is 100. <laughs> so that gives, gives you a feeling. And the really interesting thing is as well, it really has a physical effect on you. So not only you like feeling snotty, you also get, you know when you have, um, you know when you have a really bad hangover and you wake up and you get that little shooting pain through your head? That's that one that reminds you that that last double whiskey was stupid and you are, you should, you are old enough to know better. The one that shoots through your head as if, almost like a sort of frantic, lost, nervous fish slapping around inside your brain. That lovely feeling of, of hungoverness that brings us all together. Yeah, well, that's the sort of feeling you get after being exposed to this. You get these chronic, peculiar jabbing headaches, or at least I do. And the other thing that you get, and I've looked this up as well, apparently it's quite normal, is to get joint aching. So the effects of pollution, just being in it, not, I'm not playing bloody tennis in it, I'm just wandering around, living my life. The effects are 
almost identical to coming down with flu. So you get achy joints, major, major headaches, sort of jabbing pains, um, lethargicness, just general tiredness, and, um, and blocked up nose and throat, etc. So it's almost identical. You keep thinking you're just about to get flu. It's such an awful feeling. And, you know, here's me complaining, I'm just passing through. I feel genuinely sorry for people that have no choice but to be born into this level of pollution. It's disgusting. And it, and it, and it is inexcusable, actually. I say that as well as the environmental groups. We're living in a world where we don't have to do this. Like, I know that renewable energy isn't exactly at the forefront of technology at the moment, but it's places like this that need to skip fossil fuels, you know, they need to say, right, we're never going to build another fossil fuel power plant again. I appreciate it's going to be more money and it might be a bit more hassle organising renewable energy sources, or at least clean sources, but you can't live like this. Like, if it's like this now, one can only assume that it's going to cost 10 years off your life in a few years' time. And then, you know, we can all see where this is going. If it keeps getting worse, it will be uninhabitable. That's what we're doing to some of our cities. They are becoming uninhabitable through the pollution of the desperation of commerce and industry that created them in the first place. How the fuck did we get there? I thought we were clever. So, yeah, come to India and get out of Delhi and don't spend too long in Agra, where I am, because uh, it ain't gonna do you any good. But ultimately, we need to look at the problem and fix it. You know, if you're a philanthropist and you've got a few billion just wandering around in your, in your banks, which, let's be honest, a lot of philanthropists have, um, why, don't, why doesn't someone just say, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to set up a free project to recondition all the tuk-tuks from gas-guzzling, polluting shit boxes noisy ones at that, to electric ones. Because you, you do see a few electric ones here, and they're just, they cruise through the streets quietly and there's no emissions. I appreciate there's emissions from the fossil fuels, they're burnt to charge them up, but that's, that's a whole other problem. I think we can all see that it's a step in the right direction, if we, if we at least did that. So if you're a billionaire, um, first of all, send me a couple of hundred. Um, Actually, let's up that a bit. Let's send me a couple of grand for bringing this to your attention. You're welcome. And if you could send the rest, actually don't send it to the Indian government. I think uh, that might not work out very well. Come over, set up a workshop, reconditioning for free tuk-tuks from old shit boxes to new shit boxes that run on electric. That would be nice. So that's my first idea for anyone that's got any money. So, why am I in a place called Agra? Well, if you've been to India, you probably know. Agra is the home of the Taj Mahal. And I think it's time to familiarise ourselves with the history of this area and the opulence that is the Taj Mahal. I saw it yesterday and uh, it's bloody amazing. My cousin, who's been to over a hundred countries, told me that it's the most spectacular man-made he thing he'd ever seen. So I thought I'd have a crack at it. And um, 
I think I have to agree. It's, it's mind-blowing. Let's give you a little lowdown on what it actually is. So there was a fella, there was a few fellas, in a dynasty long ago in the 1600s here in India. And they were Mongols. To say that means that they were from, essentially, Mongolia. We think, like everyone in Mongolia, that they were um, part of the, of the Khan family, the Genghis Khan uh, family. Some of them rocked up here and took over this part of the world. And in those days, it was a lot bigger than India, wasn't it? It was India, I think it was Bangladesh and Pakistan, and probably a few more as well. And uh, it was quite an organised bugger. He was the government, this guy, and he took in taxes. Quite a lot, I would say, because he had some pretty incredible riches of his own. And what he did, he set up in Delhi a place called the Red Fort. Now, if you arrive in India, you'll probably go to the Red Fort first before you go, before you uh, leave Delhi and head to Agra. And so the Red Fort was essentially his version of paradise on Earth. What he did, he set up this red fort, and it was called the red fort for obvious reasons. The sandstone in Delhi is red, and uh, it's beautiful. It looks a little bit like the Taj Mahal. It's got the big whole dome numbers going on and the lotus flowers and the engravings all throughout it. Beautiful inscriptions. And unlike a lot of, because he was a, a Muslim dude, unlike a lot of Muslim architecture, it's got the domes and stuff, but it's also got some engravements of flowers. Normally you don't see any, any, any living thing depicted by human artists on any Muslim architecture, any Islamic architecture, because what that means is, is that it's, it's a little bit of a fuck you to Allah, yeah? By drawing um, the things that he created by mimicking them, it's a little bit of a piss take to Allah. So you don't tend to see any inscriptions on any Islamic architecture other than those beautiful geometric shapes that are etched in, you know. There's never any living things, depictions of people like you would see, you know, the Mayans of Mexico and various other Buddhas of Cambodia, so on and so on. Um, Buddhists of Cambodia. So yeah, you don't see any of that and you don't see, uh, you don't see any flowers and stuff like that normally. You do on the red uh, fort, so I'm not sure how he got away with that, but yeah, he did. Maybe because he had loads of money. Um, maybe it wasn't strictly Islamic. I'm not entirely sure. But yeah, you see these beautiful ins inscriptions of flowers on the architecture. So that's that's really something to behold. Just just the, some of the fine detailing. And then as you go in, first of all, like um, many of his complexes, because he's also the guy responsible for the Taj Mahal. You, you look at it from the outside and think, yeah, that's pretty fascinating. And then you realise that's just the gate to get in. So that's pretty impressive for a kickoff. But when you do come in through these enormous towering gates in, in beautiful dome shapes, um, you see what essentially, there's no other way of putting this, was a man's live-in brothel. Anyway, this guy's name was Shah Jahan. And Shah Jahan had uh, a very early adaptation of the, of the porn bed. He had above his his huge bed he had um, mirrors but of course in those uh, in those days it was hard to get large mirrors so it was just shards of mirrored glass 
all across the ceiling. So while doing his naughty business, he could look up at himself. He also had a boudoir next to his bedroom where all his ladies slept, including his wife. His wife who, who bared 14 children by him. More of that later. Anyway, uh, they, all, they all slept in there. And they had um, these mirrors all over the ceiling as well as these interwoven beautiful draperies all around them. So they lived in a sort of holding bay for when he came in and grabbed one and um, asked her into his main boudoir, Shah Jahan. I'm painting his, him as a ladies' man, I suppose. I suppose he was, but I think a lot of emperors at the time lived that way. Shah Jahan. I mean, he built himself his version of paradise on earth. In fact, there's an inscription above his, um, I think it was above his bedroom actually, that said, if ever there is a place of paradise on earth, this is it, this is it, this is it. And indeed he did a pretty good job. There's fountains with shallow pools where he used to have exotic dancers from across the world, or particularly across the east of course, that he would have dancing away for his uh, visual pleasure. He had uh, Persian rugs and carpets all across the floors. He had draperies, silks from China that he'd imported. He used inscriptions and colours like blue, which is relatively hard to find because it comes from that rock that I always forget. Lazamatapate? Lazamatapate? Labapetapate? Skibbidi-blabbidi-bee? Whatever it's called. Anyway. Anyway, they, he used blue, which was hard to come by and very expensive. He used gold leaf, um, which the same. And he actually used solid silver for a lot of his ornate parts. So for example, the, the pinnacle of many of the spires were solid silver, since of course been looted by everyone that's come through here, including the British. Um, less said about that the better we, we'll move on well, I'm sure we'll cover that a bit later as well yeah but he had these uh, these absolutely idiotically ornate uh, what could I describe them as trinkets I suppose although trinkets somewhat doesn't do them justice all around him huge copper poles with silver hoops hanging these amazing long interwoven fabrics from the what would be a very much an open platform if you can imagine that so imagine a, a tall platform with greek influenced columns holding up the roof okay way high above you with an ornate domes on top of that with those little silver numbers on those so if you can imagine that but not only that you had these open walls but to keep the heat in and keep the wind out he'd have these drapes hanging down and then he'd have them all over the floor, and then he'd look out over fountains where he'd have silks tied from one building to the other with dancers and performers dancing all day to local bands playing instrumentation. So, like, he had everything that you could possibly have in those days. There is nothing more that you could ask for. But it wasn't enough, because it never is. Just like the Trump family. Anyway, um, <laughs> it wasn't enough, so he decided to build the Taj Mahal. 
but, and this is something I've been learning since I got here, he didn't build it to live in it. Very, very different. And in the next part, I think I'll get into that. We'll talk about the Taj Mahal, because uh, I've already talked for about half an hour about this, that and the other. Yeah, we'll talk about the Taj Mahal. What was it? Why was it different to the Red Fort in Delhi? What was the point in it? And if he wasn't going to live in it, and no one was ever going to live in it, then what the bloody hell did he build it for? And what's it like? All that coming up when I'm not dying of pollution, because the smoke's coming in a bit. I'm going to go inside now and make some breakfast. Plus, this Indian guy that's been attending to the rosy bushes next to me and dusting off the seats thinks I'm proper bonkers. Because he thinks, all right, the guy's on the phone. Is he ever going to let the other bastard chat? So I think I'll, uh, I think I'll call this a day. You have been listening to Vinny rambling on. Well, here's my new form of podcast, by the way. I've decided that the best ones are just me having a chat and not editing them at all. So deal with it, bitches. Um, I've been rambling on in Agra in India, uh, not far from New Delhi, in deep pollution. I've been talking about pollution. I've been sniffing around a little bit in history. I've also been talking about population density and the madness of India. It is a phenomenal place and I continue this trip with great joy and great privilege. I'm very lucky to be here and I'm aware of that every day. India, it's fucking mental, but it's fun. I should put that on the flag. See you next time in part two. Ta-ta. You lovely sausage.